Sharjah Architecture Set Talks Series 2, Architecture Plus City, engages in conversation with scholars from a range of disciplines, including history, political economy, architecture, and urban planning, each of whom has contributed to the growing literature on Gulf cities. This series of three podcasts explores the forces that shape Gulf cities and their particular urban forms, while investigating the social and economic factors that challenge the formation of urban communities in the Gulf. My name is Mahnaz Vansi, and I'm the Communications and External Relations Manager at Sharjah Architecture Trial. I'm pleased to welcome today's guest, Dr. Arang Keshavarzian, who joins us from New York. As a brief introduction, Arang is an Associate Professor of Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies at NYU. His teaching, research, and publications explore the politics and political economy of the modern Middle East, with a particular focus on the Gulf and Arabian Peninsula. He has contributed to several journals, such as Politics and Society, Geopolitics, International Journal of Middle East Studies, Economy and Society, and International Journal of Urban and Regional Research. His current book project, titled Making Space for the Gulf, maps shifts in the global political economy across the long 20th century, from the vantage point of the built environment, circuits of trade and migration, and different conceptions and practices of political authority. Good morning, Arang. Thank you for making the time to speak to us today. Good morning. It's uh, wonderful to be with you and to participate in this uh, wonderful initiative. Over the course of our conversation, we hope to learn more about your research and your contribution to this growing field of scholarship on Gulf cities. So to start, I want to understand your methodology or framework a bit more clearly. In your two essays co-written with Alex Bootcrust, The Forever Frontier of Urbanism in 2018 and Giving the Transnational a History in 2019, you offer a literature review of the developing field. You break it down into three broad categories, essentially. Literature on oil states by economists and political scientists, ethnographic studies by anthropologists, and urban investigations by architects and historians. How and why does this particular set of disciplinary lenses inform your work as a political economist? Yes, that's a good question. Um, I'm a little bit of an interloper here. I'm not an architect. I'm not an urban planner. I come to the topic of Gulf cities really from the perspective of trying to understand the larger societies in which they're uh, embedded in. So uh, we, as you mentioned, we are at a very exciting moment in the study of the Gulf, urbanism in, in general. We have a wonderful set of uh, young, but not also not so young um, scholars working both at universities and research centers in the Gulf region, but also outside in Europe and the United States, who are looking at the Gulf with very new uh, sets of eyes, with new sets of questions, uh, tackling and tapping into new archives, whether it's to explore the history of trade and commerce in the 18th and 19th century, or oil economies uh, from a kind of a longer perspective and oil towns and company towns that I'll mention in a, in a little while, or to provide a more, um, I would call a transnational or even cosmopolitan history of uh, these port cities, these port towns, these oasis towns. Once we start looking at them, we're into, intimately interwoven with one another on the one hand, but also uh, intimately interconnected to complex global networks 
Some of these networks looked east to uh, the subcontinent, even to Southeast Asia and beyond, or uh, further south to East Africa, Zanzibar most famously, but also for a good uh, century or more have also been intimately tied to uh, Western um, economic uh, interests, uh, imperial interests, if you would like, uh, most notably uh, oil exploration beginning as early as the first decade of the, the 20th century. So as a political um, scientist or political economist, I come to this literature, tapping into this diverse literature that's being recently written on migration, on the, uh, on the history of oil, on the development of urban centers, from, from this particular long durée perspective. Gulf cities for me reveal and trace the many different struggles and conflicts over resources between people living in these individual towns. So the struggles happening in Kuwait or in uh, Boucher or in Sharjah or in uh, Doha, but they illustrate um, the conflicts and struggles that connect these cities uh, with other places, the struggle over bringing labor from one place to another, bringing wood from one place to another, an essential component of construction or drinking water for that matter. So uh, that's how I approach these Gulf cities as a kind of a nexus of the national, the regional and the international and also the global. In another way, I'm, I'm interested really in, in urbanism as a social process more than the cities as an object uh, or just purely set of uh, architectural projects or uh, objects uh, in of themselves. Also, I'm someone who approaches the Gulf as a social space rather than merely a waterway or an international border or some kind of clearly defined regional block, the GCC or something of that order. So I'm interested in, in both how people, ideas and practices have traveled across the Gulf between uh, the northern and the southern parts of the Gulf between different towns, but also the way that the Gulf is interconnected into what we would think of as the emergence of capitalist industrialization, uh, the formation of nation states, and shifts from the British-led global order to a US-led uh, global economy after World War II. Could you just give a sense of how you're defining this long 20th century? I think that would help frame it a little bit. That's a good point. So, I, I mean, I don't have very clear cutoff points, yeah. but for me, the, the profound shifts that take place at the end of the 19th century, in which we see, um, on the one hand, uh, the British Indian colonial administration apparatus taking a more, uh, let's call it, more direct interest in the happenings in the towns and in the hinterland. They become interest in part uh, later on in the 1920s and 30s because of oil, but before that, even issues ar around building airports and air travel and also protecting some of the commercial interests that British Indian merchants had. It's to some extent tied with the decline in the pearl sector, um, which creates some disruption. It also tied to an attempt to end slavery in the, in the region. But once the British are doing this, it also unleashes a whole series of other forces, forces by rulers in the region trying to accrue and control um, sovereignty. We see this in, in, in Iran, we see this in uh, Kuwait, in Bahrain, and other places where you have movements of trying to articulate a, a new form of politics. These were it's oftentimes referred to as the Majlis movements or movements to create a more 
transparent and participatory form of government. So for me, the late 1900s kind of blurs into the beginning of the 20th century to create a very different era than the earlier 19th century. And I'm interested in, in this kind of transformation from this moment to once we have the creation of nation states with clear, more clearly defined territorial boundaries and with um, more direct embeddedness of these economies in the global economy, whether it's through exporting oil, but also financially by being tied to first British sterling and then later U.S. dollars. That helps frame it, yeah. especially given that's a moment in world history where you have World War One, World War II, and then decolonization happening. Along with a few other scholars, you argue that these Gulf cities need to be de-exceptionalized and kind of reframed from the narrative of the Gulf city as a quote-unquote city of the future, something that miraculously arose out of uh, the desert through some unique powers that you know were endowed by petrodollars. Mm-hmm. Instead, you propose that this narrative needs to be recontextualized in terms of the relationship with water. And the regional history of port cities, which you spoke mm. about, and the Indian Ocean transnational trade that all existed well before the arrival of oil. So it'd be interesting to find out which transnational actors have been airbrushed out of this Gulf City narrative and what consequences this might have on the social dimension of these urban spaces. Yes, your your characterization of the literature is very uh, astute and on the mark. Um, I would say until about 10, 15 years ago, the standard story we, we told about these Gulf cities and countries was that they were basically a backwater of world history. You just mentioned decolonization. We don't think of uh, protest movements in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s in, in the Gulf as being part of the decolonization struggle, but but they were. Mm-hmm. So what I, and as you said, many others in these past 10, 15, 20 years have been doing is revisiting this history. And once we've been revisiting them with new sets of questions and new archives, what we're ultimately showing is that the region is deeply embedded in larger processes, right? And therefore, they're not exceptional. Uh, places. They're not cities that were just made tabula rasa out of the desert in the 1970s because there was a huge sum of oil wealth that flowed to these mm-hmm. treasuries. These were, were, were towns that were, for a good century, devising ways to plan the urban space. Um, and there were vibrant commercial uh, cities, as you m- mentioned. So once we actually tackle this reality, we realize migrants, laborers, both free and slaves were essential parts of these uh, economies, the pearl economy, the commercial economy of the 19th, and even before that, of course. We have to grapple with the movements of people, oftentimes very seasonally between the northern part of the Gulf and the southern part of the Gulf and back and forth. And it becomes very difficult to classify people as either being Arab or Persian or South Asian or from Africa. They were so uh, commingled in so many complex ways I, using the work of many historians, think of these societies as being littoral societies, societies that were fundamentally marked by their oceanic or seascape, being people of the Khalij, or as we say in Persian, uh, Bandari, people of the ports. Um, that's what marks them and that what's, uh, makes them distinct from people from further inland, but also what unites them even uh, across 
the Persian Gulf or even across the Indian Ocean landscape. So one thing that has been airbrushed out until recently is this highly uh, interconnected, socially and even culturally interconnected electoral society that gets brought back in. By the, the exceptionalizing the, the Gulf, another, another aspect to this is to remember that the oil industry is not just like a little switch that you turn on in 1970 with the oil boom, for instance, or the, what used to be called the oil revolution. But these were company towns, uh, towns full exploration that go back to the very first years of the 20th century that led to the building of Abadan, this major oil town in, in southern Iran, led to the building of Ahmadi in, in Kuwait, uh, it led to the building of Bahrain's Awadi, and of course, Dahran in Saudi Arabia. And all of these company towns, these cities, go back many, many decades. And what um, a number of urban historians have pointed out is that we can see the traces of planning urban segmentation, urban fragmentation in these company towns, the use of space, the use of the built environment to segment populations into clear categories. In the 1920s and 30s and 40s, in some cases, they were described as different skill groups. So management, middle, semi-skilled and skilled. But very quickly, even the documents reveal that what, what was being called skill was really race and ethnicity. So these these small company towns were actually different people being divided up by, quote unquote, race and ethnicity. So Arabs lived separately from South Asians, lived separately from uh, Brits and Americans. Where are these archives? This is one of the struggles we all have as researchers in this region. Uh, we don't necessarily have archives located in these countries. Where did you find yours? Where sure. does Where do other scholars of this area. Sure. As a political scientist, I get to uh, hide behind and, in a sense, take advantage of the historians doing the the real labor in the archives. So I myself have done some uh, archival work in the British um, National Archives, for instance, and uh, to some extent even in the Iranian archives. But the the really good, the work that I'm using by people such as uh, Nelida Fukaro, by Reem Alisa, by... um, uh, Robert Vitalis on Saudi Arabia, by Kave Essani on Abadan, and, and many others. There, I'm, I'm forgetting uh, some people here. They're basing their work on in archives in the British Petroleum Archives, or what used to be the Anglo-Persian uh, mm-hmm. and Oil um, Archives, in the Aramco Archives. So some of this is uh, the firm archives, but also um, the National Archives um, uh, for Britain, the United States. And, and these documents from the 1930s and 40s are oftentimes quite transparent, right? Um, so yeah. that's useful. But I should also mention, because my co-author, Alex Padrukas, he's been doing a lot of work on Kuwait. One of his arguments is that, and I think the leader Fukaro um, and uh, Farah Naguib also point out, is that the local press from the 1950s and 60s, especially in Bahrain and Kuwait, they're full of articles that discuss both uh, the, the hope for urban planning and urban life and new modernity, but also the protests and the inequalities and so on and so forth. So much of the local press, which unfortunately hasn't been used, um, is also a rich source of materials about social life in these port cities and that give voice to local uh, perspectives and local concerns. It's kind of fascinating to see how these movements uh, speak to this interconnectedness and sense of allegiance that crosses 
what then became formalized as national boundaries later. So as a follow-up, I'm curious about what you mean when you say the Gulf is an integral frontier to both global capitalism and urbanism. In your perspective, what are the key political and economic shifts that marked the stages of the development of Gulf cities? And what specific ways was the rise of the oil economy manifested in these cities? So for me, the Gulf has been viewed by both some scholars, but also from colonial officers and um, oil firms as, as a frontier. But a frontier in two senses of the, of the term. So on the one hand, when we use the term of frontier, we think of the frontier as the space in which a civilized society confronts either an empty space or a space that is so wild and backward that it is almost as if it's empty. It's almost like a tabula rasa that needs to be tamed mm -hmm. and civilized in various ways. And obviously this has a longer kind of colonial kind of understanding to it. But it's clear in the 19th century, the Gulf was viewed as a frontier to the British Empire based in South Asia as well, from the perspective of South Asia. So that's part of the way that the Gulf has been historically viewed as a frontier, a place that is, is wild, is backwards. It needs order, it needs discipline. The waters need to be secured from these uh, unruly pirates. But another way that the frontier is oftentimes used is, is that it's the frontier of science, a frontier of our knowledge. Even when we think of space, the spaces are now the latest frontier. It's the place for exploration, for development, for technological innovation. So for me, the Gulf has also, interestingly, represented this sort of frontier as well. In terms of oil, it became clear very early on that there were rich oil deposits that could be extracted at very cheap costs. So the Gulf, uh, the Arabian Peninsula, uh, what is now Iraq and Iran, were viewed as the oil frontier beginning in the 1920s and 30s. But also, I, I argue um, that the, the Gulf, as early as the 1950s, was viewed as a kind of architectural frontier, a place after World War II, um, in which many architects, younger architects, came to to develop their trades, to make their careers. Um, John Harris in, in Dubai is a very good example. Him and his wife, two architects, come to the Gulf and become prominent architects, but they do it through their work in, in the Gulf. It's a place where they could experiment with particular urban forms, particular architectural forms. As I understand, major innovations in use of cement uh, emerged were developed in the Gulf region. Even designs for shopping centers in the 1950s and 60s were played around with in the Gulf region. I've already mentioned the company towns. The company town design was very much based or, or kind of built on ideas about garden cities, urban space, but which is still has quiet, tranquil spaces that are intertwined with, with nature, where workers could, could return to their homes, kind of suburban type of ho uh, homes, and get away from the city and be in healthier, cleaner kind of environment. And these company towns, what, what's important is some of the same architects and designers that were playing around with these ideas in England at that time were doing this in the colonies um, as well. So the, the larger point here is that we, we oftentimes have this view that, that kind of modernism or modernity or technological innovations were mastered in the metropole and then transported, transplanted to the colonies 
But what is striking is when you read the literature that's coming out on um, architecture and urban planning is that it's clear what was the colonies and later become the third world and the global south were sites of the most cutting edge forms of urban planning simultaneously. So they were places of experiments, laboratories or a kind of architectural frontier. Is this what you mean uh, when you describe architecture and city planning as technologies that kind of build on and in, are formed by the intertwined legacies of imperial rule and extractive capitalism? Sure. I mean, to, to some extent, but what there, what I'm really pointing to is that we have to remember that there are many different logics behind urban planning. As I mentioned earlier, as we look at kind of urban planning in, in company towns or the 1950s, part of the, the logic of these plans was how to control and specifically control labor. Right. So uh, Aramco and BP, when they were building these company towns, the logic behind separating out Arab workers from South Asian workers, Iranian workers from South Asian workers and so on and so forth was to keep this the working class separate, prevent them from unionizing, protesting in order to keep uh, labor costs yeah. down. Right. I th for me, as a political scientist, when we discuss urbanism, when we analyze architecture, we also have to keep in mind the politics behind the built environment. And the politics behind uh, these urban forms were intimately tied to controlling people that were viewed as threats, laborers, yeah. quote unquote, foreigners, migrants. Mm -hmm. And uh, there is a century of, of this when we look at urbanism in the Gulf cities where the urban space is used as a technology of control. One of the questions our series is trying to think about in the background is what is the possibility of an urban community in these Gulf cities if they are built on these layers of uh, segregating architecture mm. and urban planning? For me, it's quite concerning if these cities have been designed for m many decades now to keep people apart from one another and keep people in so-called boxes to prevent um, community, a sense of um, shared fate, um, a sense mm -hmm. of collaboration and, and ownership over the city. This is what, what, I'm, what I'm suggesting and many others have been suggesting. These cities inhibit the, this possibility of a shared fate and, and a collective a sense of ownership over the city. This, I think, has real long-term implications. From an economic lens, if you want people to come to these cities, work many years, you want them to feel a sense of ownership. And, and even when they're in their 50s and 60s to, to kind of invest in those cities, this has a larger social economic consequence. If people don't feel like their personal fate is tied to what happens to Dubai or Sharjah or Kuwait or Bahrain or Abadan, they're just migrants that are going to come for 10, 15, 20, maybe even 40 years, but they're ultimately going to tide somewhere else, then it has real, real kind of troubling uh, implications. Could we go as far as to say that gated communities and labor camps are therefore similar structures or vestiges of the same imperial capitalist legacies? That's what uh, Alex Budrukas and I want to arguing those pieces, when you look at it from the long durée, there is a, a certain set of legacies and a certain set of pathways. While we may want to erase the history, whether as scholars or urban planners or maybe political uh, leaders, we may want to ignore this past, this kind of uh, past of a kind of cosmopolitan Indian Ocean world. But nonetheless, 
um, uh, the past is with us. And, and I think the, these company towns are with us in sometimes in quite direct ways. You know, one way to think about the possibilities for an alternative future is, if I, if I understand correctly, there's a growing interest in the old port town. Part of this interest is to turn these city centers into kind of open-air museums, heritage sites, mm-hmm. art, very cleansed, um, purified kind of notion of history to uh, legitimate particular families, particular rulers, particular categories. So that, that that's can be questioned, could be critiqued. From what I understand from people like Farah Nakib and others, is that some of the younger people, especially in the Arabian Peninsula, are rereading this history and are interested mm-hmm in these old urban centers as a place of possibility, a possibility of a new, a different type of globalism, a different type of social intercourse, if you will. So I think if we start to think about the old city centers from the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, and think of them not as just pure museums uh, to, to preserve heritage, but as real lived spaces where migrant workers live, but also where people's ancestral homes reside, where old souks and, and shops could, could be, but also maybe um, uh, walking tours um, and, and maybe artist studios could be set up. So a more meaningful uh, space where people who live in the cities actually decide how those cities uh, are developed for the future, not just as a for way sure. to preserve it for the, you know, as a, some frozen past. I feel like there are moments when we can all sound a bit nostalgic or romantic about this cosmopolitan past. I mean, it's very seductive, but it's also real, right? This is a multicultural cosmopolitan uh, part of the world that is inherently, as you say, uh, deeply networked an entire uh, region for years. You know, your article, The Geopolitics and the Genealogy of Free Zones from 2010, really got me thinking. Are these free zones as zones in what were old port cities in the Gulf also inherently imbued with the same power to exert political and economic control over the people there? And what does it mean that these zones actually physically block the city from the water today? The same water which was previously the source of the intermingling that marked the old port cities socially. I think that there's two issues here that you're pointing to. On the one hand, this free trade zone model is another form of segmenting, segmenting different laws, different governing bodies, right? By creating a Mm -hmm. free trade zone authority, um, you're creating a a whole separate little mini government that has its own laws, more relaxed uh, customs laws and labor laws and so on. And you're separating out here, the economy, but also the labor force into two different categories. So it makes it, again, harder and harder to have a sense of society, of, of collectivity, of community, of shared, of shared faith. Um, in that article, one of the things I was trying to convey is that when we look at two of the more famous free trade zones in, in the region, one a success and one less of a success, we think of Jebel Ali in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates, but it's important to remember Kish, the island of Kish off of Iran. When we look at these two ex- examples, these were very early projects. The planning goes back to the 1960s in the case of Kish and the 1970s in the case of Jebel Ali. So again, this was another way for me to emphasize the point that free trade zones were being developed by practitioners and businessmen and so forth 
at the same time uh, in the Gulf as everywhere else. It's not a story of the Gulf catching up to the idea of free trade. In a sense, uh, Iran and the United Arab Emirates were almost ahead of the time. So, so that's one thing. But the second issue you're raising is, and it, and it gets raised in that article and, and some of the other pieces, and, and um, Lale Khalili has been thinking a lot about this as well, is that you also have a kind of a, a revolution in uh, shipping at the same time in the 50s and 60s. If you think of the old port city being built around the port where different ships of different sizes would come in with different uh, forms of labor. Again, we can't forget slaves and so forth, pearl divers, Mm -hmm. shipbuilders congregating around the port. The whole city kind of grows out from the port. That is our classic understanding of a port city. But with these large container ships, which requiring very, very large port facilities, you get, as you pointed out, a kind of a detachment of the port from the city. But another way to think of it is, I I and and many others have pointed out that over the last uh, 50 years, these historic port cities have turned their back on the sea. If you think about the growth of Dubai and Abu Dhabi and, and Kuwait and Bahrain, the, the, the nicest gated communities are further and further out into the deserts. And people almost don't even see the sea or they don't smell the, the, the sea. Their lives don't depend on the sea, obviously, in the ways that their grandparents' lives uh, uh, did. These cities used to be called the Queen of the Persian Gulf, Queens of the Indian Ocean, these places. The societies now have a far more um, removed relationship to these ports. They depend on them for imports and exports, of course. Uh, so they do uh, literally still depend on, on them economically, even for uh, uh, drinking water, desalination, and so on and so forth. But they can ignore the sea for days and weeks on end um, because they are living in their cars and their uh, gated communities and, and the uh, high rises. As a last question, mm-hmm. I would love to find out about your next book. So some of these articles that you, you referenced, the building blocks of chapters for this book, which tries to develop a history of the Gulf that is a long durée, but also continuously moves back and forth or tacks back and forth between the northern coast, the southern coast. Iran is read in relationship to Kuwait and Dubai. For me, you can't tell the history or can't really seriously mm-hmm. investigate Kuwait without looking at Basra and Abadan and vice versa. Similarly, you can't tell the history of Dubai without looking at um, Lenge or, or Bastak. So the, this book uses this, this kind of this analytical lens to tell this a, lo- a larger history of the Gulf from the perspective of different geographic scales, the global, the national, the urban, and even the individual migrant uh, who moves back and forth. Thank you for listening. To join for future set talks, visit our website and follow our social media.